Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Barsha Rao, CEO of Nurex, a telemedicine provider that offers a hassle-free way to access healthcare and medication. Prior to Nurex, Barsha served as COO of Clover Health, where she brought operational leadership to the health insurance startup. She also served as Airbnb's head of global operations, managing the company's market expansion and host growth around the world as revenue grew from $200 million to $2 billion. Also, I'd like to thank our recent Raise the Line guest, Chelsea Clinton, for the introduction to Varsha. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I'd love to just kind of understand your backstory. I mean, you've been involved in so many important businesses and well-known businesses. What got you interested in healthcare specifically? Um, well, first of all, can I call you Rishi or should I call you Dr. Desai? Definitely call me Rishi. Okay. Um, Rishi, first of all, it is a pleasure to be here. And um, I think for me, I spent most of my career in consumer tech over 20 years. And I always really enjoyed the ability to work with and impact um, people directly. All of it was direct to consumer. But I think after um, spending uh, several years at Airbnb and really being in a very mission-driven company that was all around, you know, connecting the world and connecting cultures through travel. After I took a break from Airbnb, I felt, well, I really wanted to do something as meaningful, if not more. And to me, that is exactly what healthcare is. There are so many challenges that uh, still exist, so much around access that has not been solved. And so that's where I felt that would be really passionate for me. So that's kind of what led me to first to Clover, but then ultimately to Nurex, where you know we have a direct to consumer focus today, which allows us to have tremendous impact in a relatively short amount of time. You know, the company's been around for about five years. We now serve over 325,000 patients monthly. We've had over a million consultations for our patients over the last 18 months or so. So we've had tremendous scale and growth. And all of that at the foundation of that is, you know, we're helping people get access to healthcare that we think that they otherwise might not have gotten access to. So that's what's been very meaningful and also helped us, you know, become quite large from a scale and size perspective. It's a remarkable story. And, and you're right, like this is obviously a very large market and there's a lot of meaningful work to be to be had here. How do you uh, explain how Nurex differs from other telehealth companies? A couple of things. First, we offer end-to-end care. So there are telehealth platforms that are just around the consultation. Our view is to provide a really good experience and actually make sure people are getting the care they need. We want to allow for access to a consultation and a high quality provider, as well as access to labs if needed, getting a prescription, and then even getting that medication delivered to your door. So that end-to-end has been really important and a big unlock for us. Uh, The second thing is we are one of the only, if not the only, at-scale telehealth player um, end-to-end that accepts insurance. A lot of people don't have insurance, so of course we have a strong cash offering, but we also want to uh, enable people, if they do have insurance, to use it because that's important. And 
taking insurance is hard as a company. You know, you have to build a lot of things in place to be able to enable that. But we've invested in that so that people could actually use their insurance. And then the third way that we really set ourselves apart is probably in our female focus. We are the largest by far female focused telehealth player um, with the size and scale and going across so many issues, which we really lean into. That's amazing. And, and I'm just thinking out loud, I was looking at your list of offerings, you know, everything from infectious diseases to migraines. And, and recently you've gotten into kind of a new field. I'd love to, to hear you talk about kind of how you chose that field and what that means for your audience. Yeah. So we are female focused, but not exclusively female, but, you know, our roots have certainly been um, around contraception, which is where we got started. And our approach has been, you know, let's really go deep with our patients, understand what their needs are. And then as they tell us what more they need, let's make sure we're there to help serve them. And so we actually have gone out to our patients and they're the ones who have told us that about 36% of our patients experience migraines. And so we felt like, okay, that's an issue that we really wanted to help address. About 50% of our patients told us they experience acne. It may seem like it's cosmetic, but acne is super stigmatizing. It can have really important uh, and negative impacts on wellness, mental health, well-being, and we wanted to help address that. And there are some strong links between a lot of hormonal issues and acne and sometimes migraines as well. So they're all actually quite related. So, And we have deep clinical expertise in a lot of these hormonal related issues already. So it was something. So in March, we launched our dermatology uh, service. It's gone incredibly well. Uh, we're really excited about that. And then today, actually, as an extension of our acne service, which was the first part of dermatology, we launched anti-aging. And that is um, something we're really excited about. It builds on the same expertise that we've already developed for acne, allows us to start to grow with our patients as they become a little bit older. And you'll see more coming from us in the dermatology space as well, as we build out that whole area. But we're really excited about it. I, I'm excited too. I mean, I, I think that's an incredibly exciting thing to get into. And you mentioned hormonal conditions, and you mentioned that, that women are a demographic you see as where your roots are. That's an area that I, I think medicine doesn't have a great track record around, like the classic medical field. There's the phrase medical misogyny, where people kind of chalk up symptoms to maybe a person's mental health without really doing a deep exploration of it. And famously, doctors don't have a lot of time to ask questions to really get into a person's life. And so I'm just curious, like how much of that was an impetus for Nurex? to be a company and, and how has that gone? What is the woman's experience like on Nurex and how is it different from kind of what we would classically think of as a path through medicine? The roots of the company are all around um, areas of where there's stigma. And so, for example, you know, about 20 million women live in contraception deserts. And that was part of the reason why we felt that focusing on contraception as a place to begin was a, a good starting point. It's also highly stigmatized. And there's a lot of people who still don't feel that comfortable talking about contraception and methods with their provider, with their families, with their friends even. And so we wanted to provide a safe space for that. That's actually the reason why a lot of people aren't aware of this, but we're an asynchronous platform to date. And so we actually facilitate care 
through an asynchronous platform where people fill out an online questionnaire and then we validate all that information and then our providers take that information and do a consultation and an evaluation based on that. If they have questions, they can message you back and forth. So there is interaction, but that asynchronous method actually also reduces barriers because sometimes people don't even wanna be on a video consultation. Sometimes it's Cigna, sometimes it's logistics, actually. You know, anything where you have to set up an appointment, there's invariably friction there. So I would say that's one thing we've tried to do is create ways, modalities that reduce friction, either whether it's logistics or stigma, because that can be barriers to care. You mentioned, you know, some of the other broader challenges. We have a culture really of trying to really listen to our patients. We get thousands and thousands of comments about how we provide more information. They learned more from our providers than they ever got from their in-person doctors. You know, the technology might facilitate that, but I think it's also the culture that we fostered. So we are really proud of that. And it's something we'll continue to bring. I think part of it also could be our deep specialization. You know, when you treat hundreds of thousands of patients for any condition, you get really, really good at it. And so we can provide more information than maybe your average primary care doctor can because we have deep expertise. And that's, again, we see sort of a migration where people are choosing to get care, uh, women in particular, but not exclusively, in areas where they can get specialization and more information and where their symptoms aren't gonna get dismissed because they are talking to people, so to speak, that have seen these symptoms over and over again. Because that's another thing like we get a lot of feedback on that, hey, people feel really heard with us after having a lot of their symptoms dismissed. Maybe that dismissal is happening because providers aren't as experienced with some of these conditions. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and I think a lot of uh, clinicians aren't trained to think about it. Um, there's a lot of information coming out now about the role of nutrition, the role of meditation, the role of exercise. And these sorts of things are not taught, frankly, to clinicians. And so I think that sometimes people react, I think, in a way that, um, like you said, dismisses it or, or essentially they say, well, you know, I don't know about it, so I don't know what to tell you. And I think that leaves a vacuum open where patients are like, well, if you don't know about it, but it's affecting my life, I need to be my own advocate. In the olden days, the, the doctor was the driver and the patient was kind of there for the ride. And it feels like now the driver is really the patient. And I'm just curious if you're seeing anecdotes or stories that kind of resonate with that. Well, I think there's a couple of things in that. One is just in terms of telemedicine, I think people are becoming a lot more comfortable with telemedicine, partly driven by COVID. Some of them were forced to use telemedicine. Some of them sought services like ours. You know, we saw dramatic 100% year-on-year growth in so many of our different services based on the fact that people were really seeking new avenues of care. But I think sort of one of the benefits of all that is people learn to trust that you can actually get good high quality care through telehealth and not everything needs to have a in-person visit. So I think there's more trust there. And so that's why people are potentially seeking out new services they may not have sought out before. I think there's also more information out there. And I think that's really a good thing. I see everything from services like Healthline and, you know, there's a lot of content services. They are now um, increasingly 
uh, vetting that content to make sure that it's expert vetted or provider vetted. I think that's really a good thing because to the extent that people are you know, sort of becoming their own Google doctor, you want to make sure that they're not reading things that are going to potentially mislead them. We take a lot of effort at Nurex to make sure that our content that we put out is all provider vetted and has clinical expertise that's at the foundation. So I do think people are being more self-directed. It could be for a first opinion, but it could also be for a second opinion. And I think all of that is good. How do you guys manage keeping the clinicians themselves up to date? You know, there's, like you mentioned, Healthline, there's so much information out there for a single person to be able to triage all that is, is a lot. And that's part of why I think a lot of clinicians feel inundated and overwhelmed. And you mentioned the specialization. I think that helps a lot, I would imagine. But I'm just curious, like, how do you keep your own team, you know, the morale high, the focus on, you know, talking to patients and trusting what they're saying, uh, but also like keeping up to date with the, with the science? How, how do you accomplish that? So what I'd say it starts with leadership. Um, we have a incredible clinical leadership team. So uh, we just hired a woman named Dr. Jennifer Pena. She came most recently from Oscar Health, but before that was part of the White House Physician Corps. Impeccable clinician with depth of expertise and really strong leadership. Uh, and then we also have a woman named Dr. Nancy Shannon, who is leader of our clinician team. Again, she's been a clinician, I think, for 35, 40 years, um, and then she's worked in this setting since the beginning of Nurex, and she really um, understands kind of the powers of telehealth and what we can do and what we can't do and on all of that. So I think it starts with leadership. The second thing I would say is, you know, it does help that we have had specialization or areas of focus. Maybe I'll start with that. You know, we don't do everything, and that's by design. We don't do allergies. We don't treat people for hypertension today. We don't do chronic care management in areas like cholesterol and some of those, those later in life issues. So I think by the very nature of what we do and the way our, our patients, you know, if they came to us for hypertension, we'd say, sorry, we're not the right folks. We can't treat you for that. So I think that's a little bit different than a PCP you know, in all due respect to PCP, they take in everything and that's a challenge. And that is, um, you know, something we need to be grateful for, for what they do. You know, we have the luxury of not having to do that. But I think we also have created micro teams within our larger team. So for example, migraine. Migraine is really complex. And I think we have found that some of our providers don't want to focus there as much. And we've said, okay, certainly it's your choice. And we've created kind of more of a sub team. We have CME training in that area. We do um, consistent kind of updates and we have tools to help share cases. And we also have an expert. So in each of these areas that we've launched, we have a clinical expert who serves as an advisor to bring the latest information. So for example, in migraine, a woman named Sharice Lackman, she's a Yale-trained neurologist, and she is always bringing the team sort of like some of the latest and greatest. Um, and that also helps to keep the team current. That's awesome. I mean, this, this whole model is so refreshing because it brings in a lot of the stuff that I've always thought is obvious and, you know, makes sense. And the piece that it sounds like you've kind of done is when people go to the doctor's office, classically, they feel like there's a laptop between them and their clinician. 
And here you're ironically using you know, laptops, but in a way that feels much more human. And I think that's kind of an interesting irony uh, in a way. Do, do you get that sense? Like when you're talking to patients and they say, I learned more from you than from you know, my, my clinician, uh, how much of that is because your team is using the laptop to actually talk to people versus you know, the, the other way around as a distraction? Because we're not in person, through the messaging and through some of the communication, we really try to emphasize like that's how you build a connection with your patients. And I think our clinician team has really taken that to heart. And so they probably go out of their way relative to a, a, a doctor or provider that's in person where that is the relationship. And so maybe the, in the traditional setting, there's not as much feeling that you don't need to do anything extra. But it could also be that we, again, we have such depth of expertise and, you know, we create modules of information that we can easily share. And so it's, it's actually easy to send out information and links through technology. You know, we've created easy ways to share information that's a traditional setting it's hard to do. Like, what are you going to do? You're not going to hand out pamphlets anymore, you know? And so it all has to be verbalized and that takes time. You, you say that, Varsha, and yet where I work and where I've worked, uh, that's exactly what they still do. So it's, it's uh, is hand out pamphlets. And, and it's it's kind of one of those things where I think you're, you're clearly on the bleeding edge of things as they're moving. You know, I'm a pediatrician. And the number one story I hear from parents is they say, you know what, these days my kids are with their friends. They'll be in the same house and they'll be texting each other, or the same room, and they're texting each other, right? And you mentioned the asynchronous piece. It seems to me that, for better or for worse, like this is the modality that people are using, right? Is this asynchronous, multi-touch, lots of kind of small communications over maybe weeks or months, versus I see you for 15 minutes or 30 minutes, and I may not see you again for six months or a year. You know, like that, that used to be the model, and, and this is the new model, and whereas every other part of our lives are kind of run by essentially phones, this one area, medicine, still seems to be this kind of antiquated beast that keeps going and doing things and plodding along the way it always has. And, and, and Nurex kind of, I think, is, is doing it quite differently. Do you see that even within the demographics you're, you're managing, like maybe the 20-year-olds versus the 30-year-olds versus the 40-year-olds, do they kind of respond differently to the platform and maybe even need less support because they kind of just get it uh, versus maybe others don't. I mean, for the areas that we're in, I mean, it's all relatively young. So I don't feel like we have any real technology challenges. I mean, you know, even if you're a 40 year old today, you're using your phone all the time. So I think in our age group, we're working with people who are very facile with the phone and technology. What I would say is that um, one of the things I do think that people appreciate with our service is, so if you come to us for a migraine or if you come to us for dermatology or anything, contraception, you pay a consultation fee and then you actually get a year of unlimited messaging back and forth. I mean, a lot of people don't use it because, you know, if you don't have an issue, most people don't use it. But if you have questions, you're welcome to message us whenever you want. And we have a triage system to manage that uh, effectively. But um, I do think people uh, appreciate that because it can be really hard, as I, I'm sure everybody recognizes, if you have a question to get back in touch with your doctor, right? Like, you know, you call them, they, they're not available, they don't use text very well. Um, so... The traditional environment is not set up for that. And we've sort of tried to kind of bridge that gap. 
you know, I empathize a lot though with our in-person clinicians because I think their model is not set up so that they have time or they're even compensated for, you know, all these other interactions. So I don't envy them that now there's this need and for people to want to have more communications, but they're not really set up for that. And I think it's a challenge. I think they'll have to evolve and we'll have to figure it out as an as a society, how do we compensate physicians for valuable information and advice that they're giving along the way instead of only when someone comes in to, for a visit? Like sometimes patients don't even want to come in for a visit, but now they're being kind of forced to come in because the provider needs them to come in because that is also how they're being comp. It just doesn't work. Like insurance, the way they're working is not evolving enough. And it's like, I feel like that team is actually being hurt the most. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and maybe models like what you're setting up, you know, you, you mentioned at the outset that one of the differentiators you, you guys have obviously invested in integration with insurance companies to make that a differentiator that might be good learning for the insurance companies in general as to figure out how to compensate um, these, these sorts of interactions. I would like to ask you your parting advice. We have lots and lots of folks that are early stage clinicians or maybe interested in that career path for themselves. As they hear about you know, your own path and kind of what you're trying to do, what, what advice do you have for folks that are just starting out? I'd love to hear you um, speak on that. Uh, you know, so I'm not a clinician, so I think I can only advise kind of from where I come from. I mean, I think if someone is interested in, in healthcare in particular and building something that's really innovative these days, I feel like one, a clinician partnership is critical. I have the, um, I guess, the honor to work with an amazing team of clinicians, and that's the only reason we can do what we do at NERAC. So one, I would say if if you are a clinician and are in the early stages of your career, I think there's huge need for folks like yourselves for technologists to come up with something innovative. I guess the second thing I would say is like, learn all the technologies that are out there. I guess the way we end up coming up with our innovations is to say like, what's the essence of what you were trying to get at and how it used to be done? You know, what were you trying to understand? And then is there a new way to understand that that reduces the friction that couldn't have been done 10 years, 15 years ago, because that technology didn't exist, but what now exists? And can you, you know, again, reduce the friction, increase access, reduce the cost, all of the above. Um, so where the intention gets preserved, the quality can get preserved, but you can do it in a more seamless way. And I think clinicians truthfully are at the heart of this because they really understand those intentions. We never innovate without our clinician partners like side by side, um, but then that's when we get the best innovation is when we all come together. That makes a lot of sense. And I, and I love that preservation of intention. That makes a lot of sense. Um, listen, thank you so much for being with us today. That was fantastic. Thanks, Rishi. This was so much fun. I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.